Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing very well. I have on the line and on the screen the inestimable and eternally bow-tied Jeffrey Tucker. He is an editorial vice president of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, a think tank that espouses the Austrian School of Economics, or in other words, economics with a lederhosen. He is the current webmaster for the Institute's website, Mises.org. He is also an adjunct scholar with the Mackinac Center for Public Policy and an Acton University faculty member. Uh, he has extensive archives, which I'll link on the video, at uh, Mises.org and LouRockwell.com, and has written the scintillatingly titled The Bourbon for Breakfast, Living Outside the Status Quo. Thank you so much, uh, Jeffrey, for taking the time to chat today. Stefan, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been reading your work for years and looking at your videos. I'm in awe of what you've done to educate, what, literally millions. So, it's, of course, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Um, just before we get into some of your more recent work, um, I have a vague guinea pig theory about life events or perhaps people who influence the general public, dare I say, the slightly more intelligent general public or slightly higher foreheaded general public. But um, uh, were there any particular influences you think that drew you more towards uh, Austrian economics, uh, free market capitalism, libertarianism, and so on? Well, I, I mean, I, of course, I was a student of, of Rand and Rothbard from, from early on. Uh, those uh, writers were the essential Mises, too, of course. Those were the writers that helped me make sense of the world uh, in which we live. I also worked in many businesses and many uh, jobs and had lots of experiences along the way. Slowly, over time, you begin to piece things together and you realize certain things. You realize that the world can function on its own, that it's society and the market doesn't need an organizing uh, central force. And uh, that's a brilliant insight, I think. I made sense of it thanks to uh, Rand, Rothbard, Mises, and uh, other writers along the way. Uh, now, a lot of uh, a lot of thinkers, uh, young intellectuals, get a little bit stuck on the leap between objectivism to anarcho-capitalism, uh, the idea of the sort of minimal night watchman state with the police and law courts and the national defense. Was there anything that helped catapult you over to more of a Rothbardian approach as opposed to an objectivist approach? Well, of course, like for most people, it, it is a leap. It was a leap for me, and it, it occurred gradually over time. And finally, I kind of ran out of arguments for anything that the state can do. And I remember standing in front of Murray um, after I came to this revelation gradually, and I said to him, Murray, I'm, I'm beginning to realize something. There's nothing that the state can do um, well or that needs to be done that the state can't, that the market can't, can't do better. Does this mean I'm an, I'm an anarchist? He says, well, of course, that's exactly what it means. And I said, well, I guess I'm an anarchist then. And he shook my head, hand out. He stuck his hand out and said, congratulations, Jeffrey. I'm so glad to hear the great news. <laughs> <laughs> You've been cured. Uh, it, it has also struck me that uh, Rand, of course, uh, seemed to be quite down on anarchism. Yet, if you compare the Rothbardian ideal to Galt's Gulch near the end of Atlas Shrugged, the one thing that is conspicuously absent from Ayn Rand's ideal world is any form of government. Uh, and uh, that's just a contradiction within her thinking that's a little hard to miss. You know, and, and you look at somebody like Mises, it's a generational thing. I mean, it was true for, for Hazlitt, it was true for, for Rand, it was true for Mises. Uh, none of them were anarchists, and all of them both were specifically against anarchism. Um, I think for Mises, in any case, it was a kind of latent Hobbesianism that survived in his thinking. There was a kind of uh, fear, um, an intellectual fear, that said, look, if we get rid of the state, God knows what will happen. You know? mm. It'll just be a terrible mess. There's, there's an, an Enlightenment-era kind of assumption that the state of, the na state of nature is, is chaotic and dangerous. You know, it'll take us backwards. And they all resisted that. Iran, too. 
Um, but I think what we've learned more recently, I think we've just we've just become more sophisticated in this sense. Our, our own generation is more sophisticated than theirs on this particular point. I think that's right. And I think we have many more examples through the Internet age of institutions which can self-regulate without any external coercive agency. I mean, eBay, of course, is the world is the world's most obvious example where you have I think it's one of the largest single employers on the planet with hundreds of thousands of people making their living with no access fundamentally to any kind of law courts or any kind of statist resolution agency. Uh, simply on, on reputation and so on. And this would be not predicted by objectivist theory, but uh, it works beautifully under anarchic theory. That's just one off the top of my head. There's uh, so many free economies uh, that are going on out there. There's a book that was written recently which estimated that if you put together all of the free economic stuff, like all the stuff like that I do, that Mises does, of course, that um, uh, Lou Rockwell does, all of the stuff that's handed out for free and then relies on donations, it would actually, I think, be the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world is free or purely voluntary. And that's non-contractual, non-enforceable exchange of goods and services and money. Not very well predicted. I think we have so many more empirical examples that it's opened up uh, a lot more theory. Uh, it's, it's worth exploring a lot more theory, given how many uh, prevalent examples there are in the real world. In, in, the, in the digital world especially, it's, it's remarkable. The whole thing organizes itself without any kind of a co coercion for the most part. All development occurs entirely privately and cooperatively um, among people all over the world in an unpredictable, wonderful way. I mean, I was just thinking today that every day I wake up and there's some great new development. We have just about every single day on the World Wide Web. And why is that? It's because it's the most free frontier there is. It would be like this in the rest of life, too. If, uh, if, there were, if there were as much a frontier, an open frontier, as the, the web is. And I'm, I'm fearing, of course, that eventually they're going to shut everything down and, and get everything all screwed up on the World Wide Web. But for now, in any case, the development is remarkable. And we this way in the whole society. You know, that's one of the reasons it's great to look at the digital world, as you say, eBay, but, but everything else, too, whether it's, whether it's Facebook or uh, your own show, the fact that we're able to do this together right now, you know, unthinkable 10 years ago. Oh yeah, this is all. We live in a Dick Tracy watch at the moment. Yeah. Do you yeah, fall? Like my next book is called uh, "It's a Jetson's World." So. <laughs> How do you uh, fall on the pessimism optimism spectrum? Uh, I recently interviewed for the second time Doug Casey, who um, whose future philosophy or future expectations would enough would be enough to draw the very breath out of your lungs as <laughs> if an elephant elephant is slowly sitting on your hope. Um, and, of course, other people uh, are much more optimistic uh, about the possibilities of organizing and information dissemination through the web and so on. When you sort of look over the next few years, what's your level of optimism and uh, uh, versus pessimism? A little bit ago, the Internet went out and uh, everything in our whole office shut down. In fact, all of life shuts down. That worries me very much. But so long as we have digital communications... I am extremely optimistic. Uh, just the other day, I was doing some contractual work with a guy in rural Australia who seemed to be working out of a small grass hut of some sort. Uh, the webmaster designs a lot of our software. He's living in Shanghai. The guy who runs our music academy is living in Taiwan. I'm working with Indian software developers on, on e-books. I'm talking to you uh, in, a, in a different country. You know, um, if we can exploit this sort of global division of labor, there's no end to the progress we can make, and it, it, it's a glorious thing that it is globalized because we don't have an international state that can control, can control it. So that permits us to constantly outrun uh, the bad guys, at least for now. So, uh, and we have always and consistently underestimated the power of human cooperation, especially across borders. You know, and it's breaking down this whole the internet is breaking down the nation state. 
it's uh, it's creating really something like a second universe of life for everybody. It's like we're all moving from the physical world to the digital world in this glorious way. Well, the state doesn't yet control the, uh, the digital world. The state is so bound to this everything physical. It's such an anachronism at this point in history, which I think you point out in, in one of your most wonderful videos. It's an anachronism. Um, it's, it's working on the physical world, it's working on a New Deal-style model, the world is moved on. So, if we can keep moving forward at this pace, yeah, I think we're going to eventually outrun them. I, I, I'm, that's why I'm extremely optimistic. It's just dazzling what the market is, what, what human liberty is able to do and show us these days. I mean, history is on fast forward. Uh, you, can, you can see it. I mean, we are living in, in the middle of an unbelievable revolution. I mean, our, our children, our grandchildren, and their children after them will be uh, in awe that uh, that you and I were alive in these times. You know, if you look back at the Industrial Revolution; it took uh, a very long time, two generations. Ours is happening, you know, right before our eyes. We get to see it every single time. Do we care? Do we understand what causes it? I don't know, but it's it's a great blessing to be alive. I mean, the fact that I've got this iPhone, you know, this thing didn't exist a year ago. The iPhone four. It's unbelievable. Everything is amazing. I just hope that. We, we start caring about it a little bit more because in order to protect human liberty, we have to understand the relationship of cause and effect, to understand that it's markets and human liberty that are giving us all these things. Yeah, I think it's also, also people... I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, this is also why I try to write stories about this all the time and draw attention to the cause and effect relationships. You know, why is it, like I have an article today on potato chips, why are your potato chips fresh? You know, it's because of this, the um, amazing innovation of this bag that it comes in, made of old PP, and I explain how it's made and where it came from. And uh, we take all these things for granted. I mean, I've written about, about lawnmower parts, I've, I've written about tortillas, you know, I've written about every subject you can imagine, because to me, all these things, all these innovations are kind of minor miracles. That's probably not a word you would use, a miracle. But to me, it's like a miracle. And, and I want to draw attention to it so we can love it more, appreciate it more, appreciate its source. And protect its source. Well, I think I think miracle is a very good term because there is an ineffability about it for any single human consciousness to understand how all of this stuff happens. I, I read an article a while back called something like uh, "Everything's Amazing and Nobody's Happy," uh, and and what it was was uh, the idea that you can get Wi-Fi on an airplane. I mean, that just blows my mind. Uh, and uh, it was something like you know they said, "Hey, we've got Wi-Fi on the plane," and then like half an hour into the flight. The Wi-Fi stopped working because, you know, it's leading edge and whatever. And, of course, everyone was like, oh, man, no Wi-Fi. That's terrible. You know, half an hour ago, you didn't even know it was possible. And now it's out for a little while and you're completely miserable that it's not there. So it's a miracle in that it's so much that we take for granted. We're sort of kept aloft. I, I was thinking of these, uh, you know, these bouncy castles with lots of balls in them. Like this helium updraft keeps all of these balls floating in the air. And it's only when one of them drops, like you, as you say in the article, when you open your bag of chips and they're kind of mushed and kind of, you know, unpleasant. Uh, then you're like, oh, man, you know, something went horribly wrong. But we don't understand or appreciate, and nobody can. It's not like we should. It's impossible to. But we really need to, I think, take that time during the day to just appreciate how much goes right in the world. Uh, because it seems like we're just naturally drawn to any sort of glitches or problems, which I think is kind of natural but makes for a bit of a downward-looking life. Yeah, uh, you know, you should just interview yourself all the time. You're amazing, uh, Stephanie. Let me just say something about a subject I was looking into the other day, scurvy. Now, this is a, a disease that killed something like 2 million people between 1500 and 1800. Uh, and that's just the records we have. Uh, you know, millions of people since the ancient world have died of scurvy. Uh, 
And uh, it's solely because of one reason, the lack of access to, to vitamin C. I mean, it used to be one of those terrors that people were afraid of, like the Black Death. Well, do you know, scurvy killed more British sailors than any foreign army. That's it. There you go. It's extraordinary. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a problem since the beginning of, of, of time and, and solved through the combination of science and the market, crucially, because no government ever brought orange juice to anybody. You know, it's the market that does this. And, you know, after I was reading about scurvy, I was at a hotel and just intrigued about its history. I went down to the breakfast buffet, and there, what, what did I see but this huge a table full of juices. You know, it had orange juice and grapefruit juice and guava juice and God knows what other kind of crazy juices, and they were in vast quantities. You could take a glass of any size you want and pour and pour and pour and drink and drink and drink. And, you know, there it is. And, and yeah, no, people aren't getting scurvy, but are we sitting around going, gee, isn't it great uh, for the free market? Because thanks to the free market, I'm not getting scurvy. No, we don't often say that. I think maybe we should. Uh, the interesting thing about the scurvy point, which I learned by reading uh, on Wikipedia, is that um, people have variously forgotten how scurvy could be, what causes scurvy, scurvy and how to cure it. I mean, it was like, it was known in like the 4th century, then it was forgotten by the 8th century, then it was relearned again by the 12th century, then it was forgotten again by the 15th century, and so on. And even during the 19th century, the cure for scurvy was forgotten and had to be rediscovered again in the 20th century. Now, that's an amazing thing to me. But it's, it was interesting to know because it's for that same reason we need to keep teaching the lessons of liberty. You know, what is the free market? What is it about? We can't, we can't forget this. Um, because knowledge can be lost. And unless we're aware of the, 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 the cause of poverty and the cure for poverty, or the, or the cause of economic growth and, and the cure for depression, unless we're aware of the, the right thing to do in order to bring about the right, right results, we can face disaster again. We can get scurvy, can come back again. And uh, statism and poverty and despotism, it can come back again if we forget uh, the, how important human liberty is to the flourishing of civilization. So that's what you're doing, that's what I'm doing. I mean, we're, we're out there going, look, this is the, this is the cure. This is the cause and effect relationship. And we're, we're doing this so that we don't forget. So this generation doesn't just take iPhones for granted and take the eBay for granted and take this technology for granted and act like it's a gift from God. It's not. All this stuff is man-made, but men need the liberty to make it. Yeah, I think I think also we tend to focus so much on the West and its history of uh, you know Renaissance Enlightenment, uh, Industrial Revolution, and uh, the, the battle between collectivism and individualism in the 20th century, particularly in economics, and we forget that countries or I guess continents like India and China are emerging from. I mean, China more so than India. Some pretty brutal totalitarian histories. Um, India more with, with the socialism that was so kindly bequeathed by the British aristocracy under the Raj. And they have a much more bitter taste of statism than we do. The state has been able to be portrayed as vaguely benevolent in the West because it has been limited relative to other countries. So that's why I think philosophy and working from first principles is so important because if you have to learn by experience, things have to get really bad before you change. Uh, but if you and that's, I think, why in, in China they had to liberalize so quickly, because it was such a disaster uh, under uh, Mao and, and the other leaders. And yeah, so the pendulum swinging more towards statism here, it's swinging more towards freedom in, uh, in other countries. And that, that's what happens when you sort of bounce like a pinball off experience. Oh, that was really bad. Let's do the opposite. Oh, that wasn't really so good. So let's do the opposite. And I really hope that we can get enough principles out there 
that people can make proactive decisions rather than just wait for calamity to to turn this ship around, at which point we hope it's not completely underwater. Sometimes even the calamity doesn't do it because people don't know what, what, what caused the calamity. Mm. They, they, uh, that's why it's so important that, that we have theoretical works out there, like, like the Manicom Estate and Dan's writings and these sort of things. Because this, this is what explains the world to people. I talked to a guy from Poland recently. He's about oh, 28 years old, something like that. And he was talking about, um, I asked him about socialism in, in Poland. He said he has a, a big memory of it. He remembers long lines and empty shelves in grocery stores and his family doing without and rationing and just a, a kind of a gray world of misery and suffering. He said, uh, it's, it's a vague memory, it's, it's out there, uh, but now Poland's like a regular country. And the grocery stores are full of stuff, there's jobs everywhere, there's big skyscrapers going up. I said, I asked him, I said, how many people, uh, young people today in Poland understand what things were like and, and, and what caused it to change? He said, very few. Very few have any interest in this. And I asked him, I said, what would happen if they woke up tomorrow morning and it was suddenly 1985 all over again and the world looked in there? He said, they would scream. It would be a, the end of the world for, for a whole generation. It would be the end of the world. Um, so why is it that the difference between civilization and despair is really not that much? I mean, it's like you change a few things, restrict some human liberties, and suddenly everything falls apart. And it can happen again. Does it happen in Russia? It happened in China. Um, and it tends to be a real snowball effect. I think you've, if you just put a few things in place, uh, so for instance, obviously, if you replace a republic with a, a sort of open-ended democracy, you set events in motion that are going to inevitably result in a Roman-style uh, economic collapse uh, or you know some sort of significant readjustment. And uh, it's seeing, you know, the, the, the snowflake that lands on the top of the mountain that wipes out, out the village at the bottom. Uh, it's seeing that sensitivity at the beginning of things, the tiny little decisions that are made at the beginning of things that, you know, if you're sailing across the ocean and you change your course two degrees, you can end up in a different continent. It's that precision at the beginning that is so hard for people because uh, most people don't see that far or can't see the, the domino effects of various things. So it's like, oh, OK, so they're going to put an income tax in in, in 1917. But you know, what is it? It's 1% on taxes over, you know, on millionaires. Uh, but people don't understand that you put those things in place. There, it's The slippery slope argument is not always a fallacy. And uh, people forget that, I think, very often. Well, I mean, you can think of so many examples, monetary and monetary policy, trade policy, um, IP, which is a, a very serious issue to me. Um, but even things like the minimum wage. Okay, so Congress raised the minimum wage dramatically. You know, like 10 years ago, they put in this legislation that it, it increased um, marginally every year, starting about five years ago and going up to today. So now it's very high, it's like 725 or something like that. Well, it's made a whole generation of young people completely unemployed. You know, uh, people who are 16, 17 years old nowadays, there, there's about 10 to 15 percent of them that have jobs. The rest of them are not working at all. And it's because they're not worth 725 an hour. I don't know what else to say. I mean, this is not complicated, right? So they, they can't get a job because nobody wants to pay them that because they're not worth that, so they're unemployed. And this is a major reason why unemployment is so high. But do people make the cause and effect relationships? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Well, and uh, particularly, I mean, youth unemployment is such a gateway to good employment when you get older. I mean, I don't want to sound all Dickensian, but uh, I got my first job when I was 11. I was putting together um, newspapers and magazines uh, in a bookstore, which is great because I got, you know, free books and you take the covers off. And uh, I was pretty much working continuously uh, since then. 
And those first jobs are so important. Uh, if you wait until you're out of college, your expectations, and you wrote about this quite well, I thought your expectations about what kind of job you're going to get, that you can sort of leap over all of the jobs that are out there and sort of land in some entry-level entry mid-manager position uh, without having gone through the basics of employment from, from a very young age. I think youth unemployment is, is, is so enormously catastrophic to people's long-term employment prospects that it's one of the most dangerous laws, is, or all of the laws that keep, keep the young out of the workforce. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I'm, I'm actually terrified about what this means for this whole generation coming up with them and having work experience. And then the terrible thing is, you notice this, uh, Stefan, how the culture adapts. It's like, okay, the laws shut the young people out of the market. Then their culture adapts, and everybody says, well, young people don't really need to work. What they need to do is stay in school, you know. Work, work is just for, for poor people, for the working classes, for the immigrants or whatever. But my kids don't need to work, you know, because they're brilliant and they're smart, and they're going to do amazing things. So, you know, this is a terrible, terrible assumption, because there's so much to be gained by getting out there and working. But if the law doesn't allow it, you know, what do you what do you? Well, and I think you and I share an interest also in um, in culture and and the effects that uh, both policy and philosophy have on culture. When I was a kid, oh my God, doesn't that make me sound young? When I was a kid, um, uh, most of the movies that I saw, uh, when you had a teenager in it, the teenager had a job. It was just part of what you saw as a teenager. Uh, now this doesn't really seem to be the case. Uh, you don't see... Uh, teenagers who have jobs in popular culture. I mean, they either have crazy jobs like Hannah Montana or, you know, they don't need to work because they're so rich because they are in uh, the Gossip Girl world of uh, infinite uh, credit. But uh, it, it, you end up with a sort of uh, a wasted youth kind of approach to the media, which further reinforces, like, what's the point of having a job? Or if jobs are portrayed, they're portrayed so negatively uh, as, as so bossy and domineering and pointless and we're so much above all of that and so on that uh, it's given a sort of real stink eye, I think, to those basics of, of getting your first job and learning those the basics, which they aren't basics at the time. And, and so the way that, that policies re reflect culture, which then reflect back on policies, it creates this, I think, sealed circular world um, where everything that is enforced suddenly becomes justified and reasonable. Hey, let me ask you something. I, I was just thinking this morning about this. Uh, what are most kids uh, told to aspire to in life? I mean, a lot of times they're, they're aspired to, uh, to be social leaders, leaders in politics, you know. And if you turn on the news, what are you getting news about? You're getting news about politics. It's always the state that's in the news. I mean, uh, our culture is so completely dominated by the state. And yet, what does the state do for us? I mean, just nothing. I mean, what are we using every single minute of our day to actually fulfill our lives and make our lives great? We're using commerce. I mean, that's that's the cool thing. And technology is the stuff human liberty creates that makes our lives worth living. Um, so, um, you know, this is really disproportionate. And I'm trying to come to terms with why this is. I mean, um, I write articles about this potato chip bag I wrote today, and people have been sending me emails all day long saying, thank God somebody has written about something that matters, you know. Well, it does matter. You know, the technology matters. And yet, and yet it's not really covered. I mean, you turn on the news and what you get is, is news about this stupid, stupid uh, anachronism, what Doug French calls the dinosaur, you know, big and lumbering and mean and, you know, destined for extinction, but causing a lot of trouble in the meantime. Um, one of the great things about going to work for kids is that they, is they can experience commerce. And you know what? Commerce is a heck of a lot more exciting than the public school desk. You know, I mean, it's like if you get into the commercial world, even if you work 
you know, and Leslie mundane job like, oh, fast food. That, that sounds terrible. I don't know. I don't think fast food sounds terrible. Every time I go buy a hamburger from McDonald's, I think, hey, um, would you mind trading uh, your life for mine, you know, just for like a week? I want to I do that. I want to fry those great potatoes. I want to make that hamburger. It looks fun. All you people look like fun people. I want to work with you, you know. To me, commerce is really where the action is. But if you're not ever part of it, you know, and, and you're you, then you never really learn that. And then maybe you, 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 instead of aspiring to do something productive and decent and wonderful, you do something stupid like want to become a politician, you know, and lead people through the state. What a waste of a life. So, yeah, we gotta have, we gotta have kids out there in the commercial world to discover that that's where the action is. I mean, when you're in commerce, it's like you have your finger on the pulse. You know, that's the stuff of civilization. That's where the action is. That's where things are exciting. That's where the progress is. That's where the people are. That's where the minds are working. You know, the, the, the state is, by comparison, dead and stupid and boring. You get a sense of what the state's like by, by public schools, you know? I mean, they're, they're stupid, they're dead, they're boring. It's an authoritarian structure where you're told to sit at a desk and just regurgitate what you hear, however irrelevant and wrong it may be. Uh, you know, that, that's a terrible system to trap people in, and yet if that's all they know, it could easily be acculturated into aspiring to do things like become civil servants or, or, uh, or politicians, and then, and then we're finished. Yeah, well, certainly as, as the power of the state grows, state employment becomes that much more attractive because it always grows at the expense of stability and predictability and security in the private sector. And uh, I remember uh, I was an entrepreneur for, I don't know, a decade and a half or so, uh, all the way through the boom and the bust. Uh, I got out just before the bust. It was a good, fortunate decision on my part. But um, when you're in the private sector, particularly as the government is growing and particularly uh, of course, when you've got expansions and contractions in the money supply, which just it, it's like an injection of cocaine straight to the eyeballs of the free market because you simply can't predict what's going on uh, in any particular way. Then people are like, wow, you know, the free market is kind of crazy and it's up and down and you're, you're, you're riding high and then you crash. Whereas in the government, you get all of these soft and fuzzies, you know, like public service, service, service. I mean, of all the euphemisms, right? But um, as as the government grows, more and more people want to jump onto that ship and the, the sort of storm-tossed uh, seas of the private sector become that much harder for a lot of people. And so the culture changes to reflect that. And then it's suddenly noble to be in public service. And there's something kind of greedy and materialistic about being in a market that actually serves customers. And the last thing I'll say, too, is that there is a humility involved in being customer-focused that you simply don't get. I mean, there's so much uh, arrogance and entitlement in the state uh, in the state system, because I mean, I remember when I got a job as a, a, um, a newspaper delivery boy, I guess when I was 12 or 13, I mean, you, you had to get the paper on time and people wanted it before they went, they went to work or whatever. And you had to get up early, you had to do it. And uh, if you didn't do a good job, then people would complain or they wouldn't tip you or they just cancel their service. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you say. It just matters whether the paper is in the person's hand when he wants it. And that's not the way the government works at all. So I think there's a lot of humility that comes into people's heads and hearts through working in a voluntary arrangement that is missed if you just kind of hope to get a good job after college. Yeah, and it's, it's humility. And it's also a kind of an adaptability. You know, when you work in the private sector, there's something you, you learn, and that's that, that you have to be willing to change with the change in times. You have to be constantly upgrading your knowledge and your skills. You have to uh, 
constantly be aware of what's going on out there and ready to adapt, ready to abandon old things and adopt, adapt new things and, and change and learning new software all the time, constantly reinventing yourself uh, so that you can make yourself uh, useful to society. And, and you get acculturated to that, and it becomes kind of fun. I mean, that's, that's part of life, is change. But you notice these days, there are so many people who complain about the technological revolution, for example. Oh, God, I don't want to have to learn some new software. Okay? Oh, geez, my, what's wrong with the computer? Yeah, it may be written with viruses. I don't want a new computer. I don't want to change. Now, where do people get this attitude that somehow we can just go through all of life being exactly the same? Besides that, why would we want to be that way? I mean, why would we want to live a static existence? Some of it, I think, is that uh, there's a kind of a status mentality that's, that's afflicted people. You know, above, uh, even, even, even today, people over a certain age are burrowed down in this kind of view that the world should just be static and unchanging, and I'm not going to uh, adapt to it. Well, in the private sector, it's a great thing because it teaches you you must constantly be adapting, you must always be evolving as a person. You must never stop learning. You, know, you, must, you must always change. I think that's true. And, and the one thing that I have found as well with technology is that uh, it has increased the value of philosophy because it's outsourced memory. Uh, so you don't really have to remember as much anymore because you've got your wikis and what, Encyclopedia Britannica. You don't have to use much of the gray matter to remember anything anymore. And I mean, I, I, maybe it's because I'm over 40 or whatever, but the number of times I find myself looking up the most obvious things again, it, it's because you don't need to, right? And so because there's so much more information that's out there, you need some principle by which you're going to select what you're going to look at and why. Uh, and because memory has been outsourced, you have that much more brain matter, I think, available for uh, thinking philosophically or from first principles. So whereas I think a lot of our brains in the past kind of had to be consumed by memory, we've got a lot more flexibility, a lot more room for different gas in the tank, so to speak. And I think that troubles some people uh, because it exposes a void in their principles. Uh, if, if they have that much more, more access to information, a lot of people feel overwhelmed by information. And of course, if you don't have any principles by which you're going to organize this massive information, it does seem overwhelming. And I think that's another pushback people have about uh, technology. Yeah. Hey, I got to tell you, it's funny that you should bring this up. The other night I was at dinner with my kids and I said, because uh, I was thinking about the scurvy thing and thinking about it, and I said to them, I said, does anybody here at this table know uh, what causes scurvy? And my little girl guessed, uh, I don't know, is it seasickness, you know? And, and my son said, uh, excuse me just for a second, I'll be right back. Uh, i got to run to the bathroom. So he, he came back about 30 seconds later, and I said, okay, uh, Nicholas, what did you know what causes scurvy? He said, oh, yeah, sure, uh, the vitamin C deficiency. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, that's amazing that you know that. And then I saw that, of course, he had his iPhone in his hand. <laughs> And, you know, it's funny, I've been, even now I'm still having a hard time adapting to the, the point that you just made, that, like, there's so much that's out there, we don't actually have to carry around a bunch of nonsense in our heads. We can think seriously. That's a, that's a beautiful point. The world's changed dramatically, and in a wonderful way. I just hope, I hope we use that extra uh, space we have in our brains well for philosophy, as you say, for, for thinking about how the world works and for doing serious work like that. I hope we don't squander Well, we can certainly do our best to help that along. Now, uh, as the webmaster, and obviously I believe you should have done the interview in a, in a cape and a hat uh, and uh, some sort of Hogwarts wand, but uh, as the webmaster for Mises, uh, which again, I can't recommend highly enough, is a fantastic resource. I mean, the amount of stuff you guys put out there for free is wonderful. 
Um, what's uh, what's coming up that uh, people can look forward to? Uh, what sort of new new Fandango toys uh, are you getting out? Uh, is it going to be go 3D stereoscopic? Uh, are we going to have flight simulators through Ludwig von Mises's brain? I mean, what? Uh... You do a lot of technology work yourself, and you know how hard it is. Development is really hard. It's a constant struggle to stay on top of things, but of course, very exciting. Just recently, we put media on the front page videos that have just boosted traffic like, I don't know what. We've got a new Muses wiki that now has about 700 articles on it. Those are constantly in development. I don't know if you know about the Muses Academy that we've opened up the online classroom where people come into an environment just like this and they study with the, these, these very smart guys. Guys a lot smarter than I am. And they have them for six, six or eight weeks. You hire a professor to teach you economics or whatever. And we put a, in, it seems, I guess we opened up the Music Academy last year this time, and we've had about 2,000 students come to it, and so it's pretty wonderful. But I must tell you, just yesterday, I was working with our warehouse in Atlanta about um, the delivery of books, physical books and e-books. And we now have about 150 e-books or something like that, and about 400 books in the store. Uh, we were sitting around a table uh, just doing an intellectual session, just trying to decide what are our needs, where do we need to go. And I had a revelation, and I'm not sure if I want to go into the details of it, but let me just say that um, I, I'm, I, I vaguely now have a glimpse of how we can do another two to four to five hundred books in print and also in e-books sometime within the next six months. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Happens, you know, Stefan, if this happens, it means that the whole library of freedom can just be at your fingertips. I mean, like, everything. Right now we have the main stuff. But, but I mean, like, everything. You know, all of Jevons' work. Who cares about Jevons? Well, I don't know. There are a few people out there. They, their desires should be uh, fulfilled. And we're, we might be, you know, we're, we're close to actually achieving that. So that was a very exciting thing. I drove to Atlanta to... to to just look at the warehouse, see what was going back, or not. I came back with my head exploding with the possibility of what, what might actually happen in the future. So, very fired up about that. I was sorry, just wanted to, while you mentioned that, I would also recommend something to you. Uh, you know, just propel ahead to propel ahead, which is that uh, you have a number of books that are obviously available as, as ebooks, but are not available as audio files. And of course, there's lots of fantastic software out there that's really come a long way in the last few years for converting text to speech. And uh, it may be worth firing a couple of those through and making them available as relatively low quality podcasts because you know, people much rather, would generally much rather listen than read. And that's just something I wanted to sort of, you can automate that process uh, so that you can get these files. For some years now, and I've been waiting to find a technology that is, uh, has reading skills that's really comfortable on the ear. And I haven't seen it yet. I mean, it seems like we're like this close. To- I'll, I'll send you a link to uh, to a, a software that I use um, when I write a book. Uh, I dictate generally. I don't like to type as much anymore. I dictate and uh, then I, I have it read back to me. So if I'm working out or whatever, I can listen to my book uh, and see if there's anything in terms of the flow or whatever that needs to be changed. So uh, anyway, sorry, I don't want to bore other people who are interested in this, but I'll, I'll send you the link to, to the software that I use. Uh, I think you'll find it's actually, and, and a couple of samples, I think you'll find that it's actually quite quite pleasing to listen to. Yeah, I must tell you, from the point of view of, and I should say that I'm not technically the webmaster, I'm, I'm probably better seen as the development director or the web editor or something like that. There's a, a code monkey out there who lives in Shanghai, and his name is David Dexter, and he's an unbelievable genius. And 
Uh, he's, the, he's the master of the code behind, and I think he probably deserves the, the title of uh, webmaster. But, um, oh God, I forgot to got my train of thought here. Um, well, do you, sorry, do you mind? I, I have one more question that I'd like to ask you, if you don't mind, just before we, uh, we sign off, if you have another few minutes. Yeah. And if it's not too personal, I mean, uh, it's on your wiki page, so I assume it's not too, too personal, but I was quite interested uh, in your conversion to Roman Catholicism. Uh, if I understood the dreadlock picture beforehand, it was from Rastafarianism, which seems like quite a, uh, you know, quite a stretch. Uh, and um, uh, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm always curious about people's spiritual experiences. Uh, I've not had any fortune that way in my life, but... I'm always really interested uh, in um, in people's spiritual experiences. If you could spend a minute or two just talking about what happened and how and and why, I, I would be quite fascinated if you don't mind sharing. No, not at all. I mean, um, you, one never knows why these things happen ultimately. I can tell you the circumstances. Uh, I, I uh, enjoyed very much the liturgical music of the Catholic uh, Church, um, and that drew me very close um, to the faith itself. And by the liturgical music, uh, what I mean is uh, mainly the Gregorian chant and its offshoots of the Renaissance. And, you know, someday I'm going to write the definitive article that, that relates music of the Renaissance, uh, polyphonic music of the Renaissance, to anarchist political theory, because I think there is actually a very close relationship there. But I haven't written it yet, so uh, maybe it'll happen at some point. I don't know. But, you know, I think I find with, within Catholicism the emphasis on, the na- on natural law, on, um, on the scientific inquisitiveness of the tradition, that, that sort of love of science, that fearlessness of research that you find from, from the Renaissance thinkers, um, the beauty, all of these aspects. And of course, I should add to, you know, I was attracted to what I regard as a, you know, it's, it's truth value. And it's certainly, I mean, I think you and I share uh, an appreciation for uh, Thomas Aquinas, you know, for example. Absolutely. Uh, so like, conversions are too complicated to ever explain in something like a quick uh, video podcast like this. But anyway, I hope that gives you some indication. It really, really does. And uh, again, I just wanted to remind uh, listeners and watchers to check out Mises.org, and I'll put the links to your uh, articles. And I really do appreciate you taking the time. It was a really enjoyable chat, and I hope to uh, have a, another conversation again soon. Oh, I hope we do it again too, Stephen. It was really Take fun. Care. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.